cliffcentral.com. All right. Uh, here we are. We are live on a Thursday morning at 7 o'clock. Time for us to check in on all the big stories that are in the news, all the things that are happening that affect you and me and the bottom line and all the stuff that's internationally could have an effect on us too. We're going to go through some of those stories with uh, my co-host Pumi Mashiho, and we'll also be joined in just a moment by Karen Morn. Let me just give you a little bit of background on uh, what Karen's been busy with. Uh, she's an award-winning journalist, of course, documentary producer, best-selling author. She writes for News24 and is a contributor to the BBC. She's been named as one of South Africa's most influential journalists, and her latest book is something called Nuclear. Inside South Africa's secret deal. Now, you may recall that shortly after Jacob Zuma received uh, treatment in Moscow for alleged poisoning, he signed off on a massive, far-reaching and unlawful nuclear power deal with Russia. Had this gone through, it would have devastated the South African economy. Uh, as it is, ESCOM is devastating the South African economy, but this is, would have made it a whole lot worse. We'll find out how much worse from Karen in a moment. But um, award-winning investigative journalist Karen Morn and former National Treasury insider Kirsten Pearson have revealed the full story for the first time. And I'm so pleased they decided to tell it, because otherwise we may not have known. It might have been swept under the carpet completely. Through insider accounts, audio recordings, and confidential minutes of ESCOM board meetings, the authors have pieced together the Jacob Zuma's administration's secret dealings with Russia. And it sounds like a story from a crime or a spy novel, and that's exactly what it is. Well, Pumi, I mean, isn't this something to get our teeth into on a Thursday morning? Dude, and the, that nuclear deal <laughs> has been going on and on and on. And 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 the way that it's been reported on is, is kind of very piecemeal. Mm. Every now and again, you know, we have a lull in the load-shedding extravaganza, and then... Load shedding, load shedding, load shedding, and then nuclear deal. You should look at the nuclear. I mean, That's I, nuclear I, deal. I kind of. I can't wait to read this book. You know, actually, the conspiracy theorist in me is like, well, I wonder if load shedding wasn't also just hyped up and made worse, and sometimes switches were switched to make us think that the only possible safety and security we could ever have from a power point of view would be if we just did this nuclear deal with Russia. Or, you know? or the way that we have, you know, we have spikes in the load shedding experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And every time we have spikes in the load shedding experience, the conversation around the nuclear deal is reignited. Correct. Correct. Right. We have a spike and then we're talking about nuclear and then it kind of goes down and we all forget. And we have like, you know, two months of no load shedding. Well, let's and bring then, let's bring Karen in. She's the expert. She's written the book. First of all, Karen, nice to see you again. Has been a while. How are you? No, no, I'm good. I've been trying to read several thousand pages of Zondor, but yeah, all of us Larry eyed. You, but you, yeah, and Karen. I'm on Twitter. I know you've had this report for a week. How are you oh, still no, trying to? <laughs> Between, in between my various activities as, what is it, a CIA agent <laughs> and also stealing Zuma's medical records. Oh. And then I, I try to, you know, I, I have a variety of activities as, you know, the agent of destruction that I, you know, just get up to all the time. You know, I was quite excited that you're coming on today. I was just like, so we're going to get the lowdown before even the president gets this report. And now no, I, actually, I said to him yesterday, I mean, it was hilarious because some of the presidency guys were going to me because 
Um, yesterday, obviously, the big issue was that up until very late, the, no one had the report. Um, and that was the Except you. The delay. And then I was saying to them, you know, you should just come to me, guys. And they were like, yeah, no, that's the problem. We've been trying to reach you, but you haven't. <laughs> this is a joke, by the way, for RET Twitter. It's a joke. Yeah, you, it's you... not true. Yeah. Don't put this on the internet. Thank you. So when, 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 you, when you joke that they've called you a CIA agent and they've accused you of stealing the, the, the former president's medical records, I mean, you're joking, and to you this has now become a ridiculous thing. There must have been a a point though and there've probably been a few of these in your career where you did worry you know we've heard about political killings we've heard about what some people in this country are prepared to do to protect themselves from the from the investigation from the the, the, the criminal prosecution and journalists have not been immune yeah, exactly. we, we, and this is we have seen it so I where know, journalists have been targeted i know you are being um, blasé about this karen but it is it's it's a it can be a very scary world and there are some dangerous bloody people and huge amounts of money at stake when someone like you goes sniffing around in the wrong places well i mean there's been, you know, we know what, what um, happened to Babita Dekaran. I mean, it's the whistleblowers who are always in the line. Um, you know, a few months ago, an auditor was, was gunned down while on a job. Hmm. So, you know, the, the guys who are involved in, in the nuts and bolts, the gathering of evidence, are also very, very in danger. At the moment, you know, I am facing the possibility uh, the Zima Foundation has said I will be prosecuted alongside Billy Dana oh. over the medical records issue um, for him, you know, there's, the NBA has issued a non prosecuti certificate saying there's no basis for a prosecution against Dana. Foundation has now come out and said they will institute prosecution against Perfect. him and his two accomplices, which include me. <laughs> um, so I think that's, that's going to be very far-reaching, and I think that, you know, there has to be serious attention paid to what happens in that process, because yeah. if it is indeed the case that journalists can be privately prosecuted for doing their jobs, then that's an extremely scary precedent. I'm not so worried about someone necessarily, you know, putting a hit on me per se, mm. um, but I am scared because a lot of the, the environment that is created is the way that they talk about you, it's often in a very sexually violent way. Yep. Women have a particular language of abuse, female journalists, um, females in the, there's a particular language of abuse that is utilized, which is obviously very sexual. I've been told I must be raped, I must be murdered, mm -hmm. I must be necklaced on the street, wah, 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 I'm a whore, etc. I just, you know, there's a very, it's a very, it's very, very abusive. And, you know, obviously, fine. But my concern is that, um, you know, you, you have people who who may be swayed by that kind of language, who maybe have certain issues, um, mentally speaking, and you'll just be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I've actually said to, um, you know, to, to, to people that I'm convinced that these guys are actually trying to, in some respects, inside for us, one of us to get murdered to kind of send a message. And that well, does disturb me. Well, but you can't react to the intimidation because no. 
then they've won. Absolutely, and I mean, this is why I bring it up, not not so that you can, uh, you know, plead your case in this in this particular respect, but because this is a real thing that you have to deal with, and that's only half of the story. Because then you get the Russians and the other half, and God knows what they're capable of. I mean, you know, when you when you scupper their their chances of 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 making trillions, not even billions out of the South African taxpayer, and you are the one reporting on the minute details of this deal and who was involved and naming names and kind of getting into the, into the weeds with it, you're, you're putting yourself in the firing line from them, not just from our local uh, bad actors. So there's, there's plenty of reason for you to be quite sanguine about this stuff. I mean, I think the thing is, is that what inspired me with this book was that there were a lot of very ordinary people who were just like, no, you know, you can't do this. And and people lost their jobs. People were threatened. I mean, some of the stuff we couldn't put in the book because people were unwilling to go on, on record and, um, you know, they were, you know, they, they, they could tell us the story and give us a sense of what was happening, but they were very, very scared. I mean, one woman who was involved in kind of a research science um, side of the deal, you know, she had a dead dog thrown on her lawn. Mm. Um, another scientist who subsequently immigrated was told by a person, you know, which he said was aligned with, with, the, with the Russian agenda that it would be better for everyone if you were just killed. Yeah. Um, and it was like a joke. Throwaway comment. Um, for people, and people, you know, what was more disturbing for me, and I spoke to Antlantla Nene about this, was that you had these treasury officials, department officials, who were just like, listen, you know, the constitution requires that procurement is done in an open, transparent, cost-effective way to the benefit of the South African people. We don't have feasibility studies. We don't know how we're going to pay for this thing. You know, there are clear concerns. Mm. And rather than saying these guys are just trying to do their jobs, the kind of same language that you see employed all the time in response to, to many pertinent questions, you know, particularly on social media, oh, well, you're an apartheid spy. You know, <laughs> you're an agent of the yeah. West. Yeah. And Zuma's like big, you know, this, parent, this belief that he had that now Vladimir Putin has saved him from being poisoned, then poisons, seems to poison all of his interactions with people who are literally just doing their jobs and saying, how do we afford this? How do we make sure that this doesn't do damage to the South African people and that we cross the I's and dot the T's? We, 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 you know, as Treasury, we just want to make sure that, that there's not some massive problem here in the future. And then they are demonized. They are subjected to fake intelligence reports. Gordon has fired off the back of a fake intelligence report. And they made out, many of whom were very intricately involved in the struggle, to be agents of the apartheid government on the basis of absolutely no so, evidence whatsoever. Can we start at the beginning? Mm -hmm. Because I don't want you to give away the, the book. I want people to buy it and read it. But <laughs> but if you can just give us the, the, the genesis of all of this. Like, when did it all begin? And, and how far down the road did we actually go to, to perhaps ending up in an ug ugly marriage with Russian nuclear power? Well, nuclear energy was always kind of on the table for South Africa. Remember, the apartheid government um, was very, very pro-nuclear. Yeah. At one stage, the, the then energy minister was like, no, South Africa must be completely reliant on nuclear. Um, that was their big vision. They bought uh, Kuburg. 
And of course, we were the first uh, country in the world to openly declare that we had weapons-grade uranium in, yep. in 1992. So we, we have a long history with nuclear. But the ANC comes in and, you know, in terms of their energy plans, nuclear is put forward. Um, it appears that the push around nuclear really starts once Zuma. I mean, Mbeki tried to do a nuclear, was looking at a nuclear deal, potentially with a Reva Westinghouse. That actually got far, far more advanced than, than the one with Russia because they were actually doing things procedurally oh, correctly. Oh, yeah, and, but and, and that, was the, that, 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 was the, that was the pebble bed stuff as well, which had also gone mm. quite a long yes. way down the road, yeah. So you must said it wasn't just a Zuma thing. It mm. wasn't a Zuma thing. It was an ANC thing. They were, and even now we see Mantashe with this pro-nuclear language. The debate is not whether nuclear is an appropriate energy source. The debate really is how do you procure energy in a way that doesn't end up you know, devastating the country um, economically mm -hmm. and supporting certain geopolitical biases that you may have as right. a head of state, which is really what we interrogate here. But we, you know, there's this, this in, in, in 2010, 2011, there's the, the release of the integrated resource plan. We must get 9.6 gigawatts of nuclear energy, you know, eight plants, et cetera, et cetera. Energy department comes out very supportive of that but then pulls back because National Treasury is like, wait a minute. We can't afford it. Then, yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> this goes on for a few years. And then we see the poisoning happening, the alleged poisoning in 2014. And that is really what gives the impetus for this almost hell-bent determination on the part of Zuma and, and his kind of acolytes to now push through a deal with Russia um, in circumstances where it really wasn't certain how that thing would be funded, and there were real dire concerns raised about Treasury about the impact of that deal on, on South African people. Were people paid, Karen? Were people paid to push through this deal? Well, the portrayal of the Promise Report, which is really excellent, was released in 2017. I think they, they, they said that they had received information that the ANC got in the region of 100 million rand um, to, to, to do the deal. Um, but, you know, when I asked Zuma about that, said, you know, there has been the suggestion that there was a kind of corrupt intent behind this. He just repeatedly said to me, oh, no, everyone says that. Everyone says, but it's just propaganda. It's propaganda. It's propaganda. But he got very, you know, you could see he was quite upset about that question. But we know from the Mudipi and Kusile debacle, which is, you know, which is continuing to have devastating impacts on us even now, because, I mean, those plants were... I mean, that was radically mishandled. Mm. And we know from global experience that energy, massive energy projects, procurement projects, and indeed any project, really, if you look at the evidence of the state capture inquiry, is tainted by some form of corruption. So, yep. um, you know, while there were these vociferous denials, and, you know, there certainly, you know, there has been question marks around funding from certain Russian oligarchs to the ANC. The ANC has always denied that there was anything of that nature. But... You know, one just has to read any Zondor report on any given day to know that the scale of procurement here, it was very unlikely that there wouldn't have been something nefarious. And there have been certain contracts linked to the deal that have been red flagged as immensely unlawful and potentially problematic. Mm. All right. So, so we and talk, when you were, sorry, sorry, Pums. I sorry. Just, I'm curious about this poisoning thing because that seems to have been, that's, that was like the, the crux, right? That was the moment where everything became really, really urgent. We still don't know 
whether Jacob Zuma was poisoned by his wife, whether he was poisoned by, uh, whether he was poisoned at all, frankly, whether it was not made up uh, as, as a bullshit story, an excuse to go to Moscow. And always, you know, he and Didi Mabuza, I think, both went there to, to be treated for similar uh, poisoning, um, which is such an old, like, Stalinist playbook thing that they must have learned. Uh, in the early days of the struggle and, and, and imported into the, the 21st century, whether or not it made sense anymore. Um, it's something that the Russians still do. You know, they did it with um, a number of oligarchs who secreted themselves away in, in England. Polonium Dude, poisoning and all that. And, and the Ukrainian, the, the past Ukrainian yeah, president. The, the like Russians and poison is not a thing. Right. So, and, so, so what do we actually know about this? And has there, has there ever been anyone prosecuted for trying to poison a head of state? You would think that would be quite a big story. Well, what's fascinating is, you know, I feel desperately sorry for Mpumalelo and Tuli Zuma because here you have Zuma's wife, um, who, when I interviewed her, it was very apparent that she she really loves him. She, you know, she was there was this kind of bewilderment. Even all these years later, like how the hell did this happen? She said to me, "But how can how could anyone think?" And she says she gets confronted by the former president. We detail all this in the book, but you know, sort of around December, and then asked if she's had contact with with American intelligence agents. She's like, "What?" I mean, the, the fact of the matter was that she was, and this is one of the key things that's going to come up in the Zorda report now, because it was called Operation Tenru. This woman was literally unlawful, unlawfully detained by SSA agents in the middle of the night, um, you know, had her phones taken, subjected to kind of like this bizarre, like late night uh, interrogation by the SSA. Zondo at the time said, you know, this is, if this is true, it's, it's completely unlawful. Mm. But she goes through this. They can't find a shred of evidence. And eventually, like, her lawyer goes to the, in, you know, Lord Rue, who we know very well, he does a lot of really important criminal justice work. Mm. But he goes to the, the, the NPA and says, you know, in, in around 20, 2019 and just says, you know, what the hell? And they, they make a decision on the docket. And Elaine Zungu, who's the then DPP, or who is the DPP in, in KZN, just says, first of all, we don't have a statement from Zuma. We, we don't actually know what the complaint is. And second of all, there's absolutely no medical evidence that this man was, in fact, ever poisoned. <laughs> but subsequent to that, he goes on Zooming with the Zoomers with his son and says, you know, I, I received three poisons. And, you know, the doctors told me that any other person would have died. So you can see the appeal to kind of the delusional narcissism there, right? Yeah, of course. But it's, he goes, he goes, and you know, the thing is one can, one can ask questions and, and braver souls than me would do it. But you know, the fact that you, you have this poisoning and then you go to Russia and they instantly are able to identify which poisons and immediately treat you and days later you're signing a nuclear deal. It all has a certain complexion to it. Um, that looks questionable. And I've had more than one person in government tell me that they were personally convinced that there was potentially, you know, that it was potentially orchestrated by, by Russia to, to gain Zuma's trust and to, to make him more and more invested in, in this, this massive nuclear project. Of course, in his mind, Vladimir Putin saved his life. He's referred to Putin as my friend. And he said that he knew that the only place where he would get 
some form of salvation from his terrible life-threatening medical condition was in Russia. It's, it's really, it's like straight out of a very bad spy novel. All right, so Pumi, you had, you had a question and I interrupted you. Sorry about that. Well, my question is about, on, of all the, the bizarre things that you came across researching this book and fascinating as well, which are the ones that stood out most for you? And had they, have they made it into the book? <laughs> well, I mean, there was one that came out in the state caption inquiry, but they had Russian-trained forensic um, officials, you know, in, uh, pathologists or whatever it was. Massive, like I think it was about several million rand um, to, to test the president's food, you know, because apparently he believed he was going to be poisoned. And the only thing they could find was expired cool drinks in the pantry. So, I mean, that was, that was, I mean, it's funny, but it's also not funny. You know what I'm saying? Uh, wow. You know, so I mean, that was one of the, the weirder things. But I also think, you know, it, it's, there's so much about this that is almost comedic. And I think the South African, our coping mechanism is humor, right? Yeah. We just, we just have mm. jokes the memes. But this was so fundamentally abnormal. And, you know, we, we had like Des Van Royen as a finance minister for a weekend, guys. Like, yeah. we have Nene who's like holding the line, holding the line, and then just says, look, I can't sign off on this stuff. And he's removed mm -hmm. and on the basis of a lie that he's going to the BRICS bank. We have Des for four days and then we get Gordon because, you know, there's a pushback. But we we have normalized a lot of madness. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you actually step back and you think, my God, that actually happened. Um, and the craziness continues to happen. But that stuff was really like, you know, there was a point with the Des Van Royen thing where if there had been a successful a capture of national treasury as is detailed by Zondo, we would be in a like very different and, and possibly far worse than the already very bad situation that Absolutely. we're in at the moment. I think that, that goes without saying. Yeah, I just want to throw in one, one other thing quickly. Um, you had a very famously a, a couple of run-ins with Batabile Dlamini and her then spokesperson. And I remember they did not like you at all. Now that she's fallen from mm -hmm. grace and she's now persona non grata in many circles and has been proven to be all the things which you were asking questions about, have you heard from Batabile? Uh, have, have you? Have, yeah, have they given you an apology? <laughs> have they have they said oh, we're so sorry, Karen? Or has anyone said to you thank you, Karen, for uh, uncovering just how incompetent this person was at one of the most important jobs that we have, looking after the poor in South Africa? Just saying, you know. I mean, Bertabita at one point did do a whole Twitter thread, which began, "Who is this Karen Moore?" Exactly. She seemed to be. She's one of the people who. I think thinks I'm a CIA spy. I've certainly heard that from certain quarters in, in you know, she was basically going on about, it was like seven tweets about like who controls me and what I do. Yeah. So I don't think I'm getting a, a, a apology from Badabile. But I mean, I think that's the, the terrible, that's the horrific irony of this like radical economic transformation discourse is that we do need radical economic transformation. But the people who claim to argue and contend for that are people who have done everything in their power to abuse and, and take money that could do massive good for the poorest of the poor and funnel it into their own coffers. I mean, if you look at what happened with Estina, 
you know, a hundred black farmers who were promised this life-changing experience that they're going to get cows and they're going to be able to uplift their family. And then you have these dead cows in the, in the lake, like yeah. however many weeks later, all of that money goes to Sun City, allegedly, to fund a Gupta wedding. Um, you know, the asbestos scam, you know, you, people living with actual poison in their roofs and money that's meant to be spent on that 21 million goes to, to an audit that never results in the removal of the asbestos. And the rest is spent on, you know, various ANC deployees, ministers, loans, um, fancy cars. I mean, it's actually offensive. And the thing is with Sasa, I rem I'll never forget that press conference because it was just, the, the thing was that they were going to read a statement, we must record it and we mustn't ask questions. Mm. In circumstances where the DG had resigned, there were serious problems. The Concord, and you know, everything that I said to her was going to happen, happened. Concord found against her, found that, yeah. you know, ultimately it was the basis of the perjury charges. And you don't take delight in that because ultimately, like I said to her, if you're a minister, we as a country have faith in you to like do the best for us, to, to be able to answer our questions because you should be able to answer our questions. And this hostility and refusal and aggression and demonizing of people who ask for accountability in all spheres of life is simply unhelpful for democracy. And it shows that people who adopt that discourse aren't about radical economic transformation. Mm. They're essentially about non-accountability, non-questioning of their actions, right. and a deep and inherent belief that they cannot be held responsible for what they've done. Yeah. You know, Karen, all, all of the things that you're talking about, and it seems to me like what you have in your book, and you mentioned it earlier, is there's a confluence between what's in your book and a lot of what's come out in Zondo. Mm, right? And, and, and that the... The, the issue at the heart of it all is really not so much a couple of bad people, but policy coming out of the ruling party that opens us up as a country to, to all of this abuse, right? For you, being at the coalface of it as a journalist, are there still areas that have sparks of we can turn this around? You know, the fact of the matter is, and I, I always say this to people, the nuclear deal wasn't stopped by people in government. I mean, there were obviously very, very brave Treasury and Department officials, people like Nene, people like Gordon, Lugisa Fuzile, guys who were just holding the line, holding the line, holding the line, and we have to give them props. But the nuclear deal was stopped by two middle-aged women. And David Unterhalter, who was their lawyer, yes. who went to court with a really smart case and they stopped the deal. And they did it in a way that because the, 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 the Russian nuclear project then moves to ESCOM because there's Coco there, Brian Molefe, very pro-nuclear Brian Molefe, Anaj Singh, all of those Gupta-aligned, alleged Gupta-aligned individuals um, in that organization. But the way these women, Makomala um, Kalakala and Liz McDade, litigated was that they, they blocked on highly legal, technical, procedural points the Section 34 determination that mm -hmm. now ESCOM can procure energy, the, you know, the request for information, the request for, all of it was blocked. And it was blocked in 2017. So at that point, the this, this smart case with a very well-written judgment, 
that was very apolitical. It was just like, this should have happened. It didn't happen. You know, there should be public participation. Um, they stopped the nuclear deal. And, you know, South Africans, you know what I love about this country is we have incredible people. Like, South Africans are amazing. People in South Africa are amazing. Like, I, like I'm always, like, blown away by it. We just have terrible leadership. Mm. And so, you know, I think the thing is to remember is that, you know, it is very, very hard to be positive at the moment. I mean, yeah. like we need, I'm, I'm very glad I have my power on right now, but, you know, it is. And you have to understand that the circumstances we find ourselves in, which is a season of reckoning for this, like, over a decade, but even before, like, poor planning, poor policy, inherent corruption, cancerous corruption, very difficult. But by the same token, we see evidence all the time of ordinary people who are just like, you know what? No, I refuse to go along with that. And I think the thing for me that I take away is that never ever believe that you're insignificant because we constantly have evidence in South Africa of brave people standing up and, and, and holding the line and making massive difference to all of us. I saw you on uh, TV the other day talking about this Estina Derry and the Gupta you know, extradition and how that's all going. I mean, is is this just, I, I'm only going to believe it when I see them clapped in irons at OR Tambo Airport, because until then, it's just, you know, international politics and diplomacy with some technical and legal move, maneuvers. And really the government also looking desperately at this point to distract us from Cyril's farm. But um, mm. what, what do you what do you feel the, the, the possibility and the potential there is to actually bring the Guptas to South Africa to face charges. I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Do you, Karen? No, you know, the thing is, I don't think there's going to be necessarily a big problem with the extradition because, and that's got a lot to do with the kind of geopolitics of the UAE. Because what happened in, what happens in March, like literally a few days after the red notices are issued against the Guptas for money laundering and fraud linked to the new lane project, is that UAE gets placed on a gray list for money laundering um, by the Financial Action Task Force, which is this intergovernmental body, has massive power. Um, and, and if you're placed on a gray list for, for money laundering, effectively you flag as a potentially high risk, a high risk country right. for money laundering. So in the immediate aftermath of that, UAE was, they extradited, I think it was a Swiss national, European national force. Yeah. So they, there's, and they come out as soon as they literally like, they know they're going to be put on this gray list. They mess, they're sending emails to the NBA saying, we need fingerprints, we need photos. You know, as soon as almost like a day, a day later after the, the red notice is being issued. So they were very enthusiastic. Hmm. Dubai police confirms it. Um, the Minister of Justice there comes out with a strong statement, which is clearly designed for an international audience. This shows how serious we are around money laundering. We have gathered our own strong evidence, strong evidence prior to these arrests. So from a political point of view, from, you know, and also having been there and spoken to lawyers in Dubai, it is very apparent to me that UAE wants to make this happen. There's not going to be a problem. And I mean, the, Lamula, the justice minister, has come out and he said to me, look, they're very enthusiastic. They want to help us. They want to... That's not the issue. Mm. The issue is, one, you know, the, the NPA cannot try the Guptas on charges it doesn't extradite them for. That's the rule of specialty. It's universal to extradition around the law, uh, around the world. 
And at the moment, they're only charging them in relation to New Lane, the 24.9 fraud feasibility study linked to Estina. So, you know, if they're going to charge them with other things, they have to get those matters in court. That's that's the, the only case that they could really do that with with Estina is Estina. And then they have to bring a case that could convict them. And the Gupta's already saying that you don't have evidence against us. And we have already two failed prosecutions to show that the NBAs have seemed to have a bit of a problem with actually getting these guys behind bars. So I don't think the extradition is necessarily going to be an issue. I just worry about what's going to happen when they get here and if the NPA is ready and able to, to properly prosecute them and get them convicted. And just watching what's happening with, with even Ace Mahashule, you can see how not ready they are. If you see what's happening with Ace Mahashule, because those two things are, are linked to each other and how long that this thing has kind of been rolling and they haven't been able to, to bring a strong case. To book and it's just like, but again, that's what's going to happen. This is all by design. I mean, we saw the NPA gutted <laughs> under Jacob Zuma. He did this on, pur- on purpose. He he knew what he was doing. It's not a, a mistake. Yeah. The the NPA has been neutered and has been rendered completely useless. And it's it's their incompetence, if I understand you correctly, Karen, that will that will be the problem in in the Gupta extradition if that ever happens. And it is their incompetence that is putting the Ace Magashula situation in uh, a worse position than it should be. And uh, to be fair, I mean, it's also the NPA that are incapable of arresting a single person with respect to any of the findings of the Zondo Commission, which have been detailed and longstanding and quite expensive to the people of this country. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, the NBA came out with a statement, I think, yesterday, basically saying that, you know, they're not really wanting to do a blow-by-blow on the Gupta extradition and that the media, you know, very critical of the media and unhappy because there have been, I mean, Henny van Feren, who is someone that we all know and I have massive respect for because he is a massively forensically-minded individual, came out very strongly and critiqued what's been happening with this extradition process, not unfairly. And that clearly irked the NBA because, and I think, you know, came up with a statement basically saying that, you know, they, they, they are, you know, doing their jobs and they, you know, people are jeopardized or potentially jeopardizing the process, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but the fact of the matter is, y'all's got that red notice on the 28th of Feb. And it was only in May that you guys decided that now you're going to send the UAE fingerprints and photos right and because i broke that we broke that story they were refusing to confirm anything and we had strong sources and we just thought stuff we're going to run it because we know it's true and then it was only subsequent to that that they confirmed no we have you information from the uae and then we saw the subsequent confirmations from dubai police and the justice minister but you know in extradition you have what's called an extradition pack so you get your little red notice the red notice is supposed to f- help you find these guys so you can serve them, you can you can arrest them prior to extradition, and then you have the extradition. You're completely front-footed. You are ready to go. Mm-hmm. Nothing of what has happened has indicated, you know, that they are ready to go. And, I, and I, you know, the NPA also needs to understand that South Africans, we don't question things because we're disloyal. We question things because we are so intensely loyal. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you care about justice being done, the constitution being upheld, 
you have to say, well, is this being done in the right way? Is this going to be done in a way that enables an effective process to happen? And so this rhetoric that we even now, you know, post all these like this year, these years of non-accountability that, you know, we don't want to answer questions, um, et cetera, is, is, is really problematic. And I, I feel very sad for the MPA that that's the stance that they decided to take. Certainly for me, it indicates that they're probably not wanting to answer the question because they're not entirely 100% sure of, of what they're going to do in this process. Is there any evidence to play devil's advocate here? Uh, is there any evidence that they are that they're moving in a in a positive direction? Is Shamila Batoy even interested in trying to? I, I know, Pumi, you pull your face, and I do too. I'm just trying not to be a cynical bastard today. Is there any evidence, Karen, in all your dealings with them and with other bodies in government that there that there's an an attempt to right the ship? Because it almost seems as if everyone's just throwing their hands up, going. Ah, well, it is what it is. What are we going to do? Look, I mean, I have massive respect for the Special Investigating Unit Mm -hmm. um, at TB. They've they've really, at one stage, I think a few years ago, they were collecting, I don't know, like 50 million. Now they're over 1.8 billion rand that they managed to get back. Uh, They're obviously facing legal challenges. There's a whole question around can they do asset forfeiture, um, you know, this, and certainly, you know, one of the one of the sad things for me was interviewing Motibi, and he was saying, "Look, you know, if we got the opportunity and a mandate to prosecute, we would totally do it. We would do it with digital vibes. We'd want to do it." And then the NBA coming back and saying, "Well, we're the only body that is constitutionally mandated." I just thought that's such a lost opportunity. You know, the thing is for me is that the the NPA. And you see this language from them all the time. Oh, six months, six months, we'll do this. Six months, we'll do this. Um, and But there, there is so much goodwill. People want justice to be done. So many, you know, so many, in, like Transnet, ESCOM, they've done forensic investigations. They've presented the evidence to the NPA. NPA does not appear to have the kind of skills level that they need to bring those cases forward. So... You know, what do you do? You come up and you say, well, what policies can we develop? Like hybrid state private prosecution. What can we do? Like, can we, and instead of saying, like, let's develop, let's come up with some really smart solutions, there's this kind of, well, um, we don't want people to perceive us as biased. There's always, you know, and I'll, I'll wrap up now, but one of the most heart-rending statistics for me was that there was more, Corruption convictions under Sean Abrams than there is under this current NPA <laughs> administration. Right. Sean the sheep. That's, that's, I'm serious. Yeah. And that's the the problem. There is. I mean, Rebecca Davis, who she she like wrote an article about this, and it was it was mind blowing, but not something that I did necessarily didn't expect. But you know, if I had to use a word to describe what's at the heart of the NPA's problems at the moment, is it's paralysis. They're just terrified of doing anything. They've lost a lot of people, and they don't want to acknowledge the problems that they have. They just want to keep this repeating, oh, no, we have capacity, we have capacity, we have capacity. You guys don't. No. You don't. What do you do now? Yeah, you know, more than anything, and Karen, you spoke earlier that we do need radical economic transformation in this country. I think more than that, more than radical economic transformation, we need a radical leadership transformation because what it actually is is we're stuck 
without having and you speak about the fact that we've got great people in fantastic places we've got willingness and we've got civic uh, servants who want to do the right thing but what they don't have so the paralysis we see at the npa gareth doesn't like to hear me say this is because there's a leadership vacuum there right so shamila as much as she she can say and want she is unable to be the leader in that organization that because there's too much political interference on her side right there is and and, and everywhere weak. else she's so transnet transnet there's yeah but transnet right so Porsche derby cannot is not the kind of leader that that organization needs in order to and it, it goes all along it's right along every part of the the every all the way to our side hustle president. <laughs> we have a yeah. leadership vacuum. Well, what do you think of that, Karen? I mean, what do you think of Cyril and his position at the moment, which is becoming increasingly heated? And, you know, the media have been largely in lockstep behind Cyril every step of the way from the moment he was made deputy president, let alone president. And it seems very difficult to find any critic in many of the mainstream news media organizations who will say a bad thing about Cyril. I mean, I even saw an article yesterday that said, if he isn't for some reason elected president, the RAND will tumble to all-time lows. You know, this is clearly <laughs> propaganda. What, what, is, what is going on there, and what do you think the ultimate effect of this um, – and we know that this is, you know, RET faction um, – planted information this pala pala farm thing and obviously it's a sensational story but it doesn't really impact on the fiscus or on the south africa the average south South african the way that state capture does um nevertheless deserves attention and it's getting it's getting a very bad uh heap of pr piled on top of cyril what do you think is going to happen here well you know the thing is i i hate this idea and i i don't think south africans think like this i mean we constantly be fed this guy this 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 nonsense that you have to pick a side. Yeah. You don't have to pick a side. You universally <clears throat> demand accountability and you you hold people, you know, whether they're allegedly on the side of good and true or they align themselves with, you know, setting the whole country on fire um, and 350 people dying, um, you have to, 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 to say, look, you know, there's no free passes here, guys. Like the Pala Pala thing is an issue. Um, and the, the silence of the president on key key points, um, I think, you know, is, is, is something that needs to be pursued. And I think there has been some good, like, really good journalism around this. You know, my colleagues at News24 have done good work. Um, you know, Amal Bungani, like, there's, there's a Daily Maverick. There has been a focus on this because it is there is an awareness that there is a case to answer. I mean, no, it isn't taxpayers' money, but... You know, it just reinforces this idea, this, the, and I think it's come forward in Zondor as well. And, um, you know, in his first report, he, he said it was, there was clear evidence that the ANC was benefiting from the proceeds of corruption. And, um, you know, I was with a very, very brilliant academic. And um, he said to me, the ANC is effectively an organized criminal enterprise. Sure. So this idea, you know, that's why they get all resentful. Oh, well, you're going to go after this one, but what about this one? Because everyone knows. The whole you thing know, is fil- filthy. Stuff. Like, it was set up. You know, there's a, a very, very devastating findings around cater deployment. Great people 
qualified, brilliant professionals removed from positions in favor of highly compromised and incompetent individuals who were going to do the bidding of whoever. Serious evidence of, you know, with Prasa contracts, alleged kickbacks going straight to the ANC, Bosasa, mm-hmm. you know, Chancellor House. Prepared to sell the country for, you know, a bribe pack and a Christmas cake. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is, this is, this, if, you know, and I, I was actually tweeting about this today. You know, the, the irony, of course, is that when Madan Sela proposed the investigation, it was going to just be Zuma and Gupta's ESCOM. Six months, we're out of there. Right. And then Zuma widens the terms of reference to say basically investigate all corruption ever. Mm-hmm. And he puts his own party on the on trial. And now we have to like deal with this awareness that we've opened up our kind of body politic and we are riddled with well, cancer. Well, this is and the, now we the, have to the, kind of like we have to come back from that. To go back to Batabile for for this, uh, these are the Smolanyana skeletons that are all popping out and falling out everywhere. And as you say, now we're riddled with this disease. But I think the solution is for us to prosecute everyone equally. Let's not go after only well, one faction, Nancy. And if it means, for the law, yeah. And if it means we have Absolutely. to build, if we have to build a whole new prison just to house all these corrupt politicians, I think that's tax money well spent. And if we have to build a, a parallel NPA just to deal with state capture and and that kind of corruption, build it. You can even ask me for another ten percent tax. I'd pay for it if it cleaned the rot out. I think that's the frustration is that we are like living the consequences of what has happened and it doesn't and seem like is. it's not happening anymore. I mean, if one thinks about the fact that at the height of COVID where so many people were dying, that people were prepared, you know, like we're taking PPEs. I mean, my God, guys, like surely even you, you're like, you know what? A lot of people did this devastation, economic yeah. poverty. People are starving. Let's just take a little, but no, it intensified. And I think that was a kind of breaking point for South Africans as well. It was like, oh God, you, I think the level of frustration is massive and it's understandable. Well, maybe. And I think maybe outside just... of, I think what's, what's going to be interesting is that I think that there are going to potentially be legal challenges around the ability of the NPA to take these on and, and potentially pushing the envelope around what, what can be done in terms of private prosecution. Well, we already see this. We see this happening with Afri Forum mm. and Harry Nell. And I mean, I think that that's opening the door to a, a whole world of hurt for another ineffective government institution. Look, if this stuff that has happened, all the stuff you've spoken about, Karen, the, the club-footed, stupid, irresponsible, arbitrary way that government handled coronavirus, if all of this stuff doesn't prove to people that government is the very worst way to deal with probably everything that's ever encountered you in your life, then I don't know what will. Because it's almost like it's been laid out as a, here's your final lesson. If you don't get this lesson, if you still think government is going to help you, you're an idiot. Here's all the proof you've ever needed. But the people who suffer, you know, I can sit here with lib- libertarian tendencies and I can make sure that I eventually get solar power and, you know, I can have a borehole or whatever else. No, but but, but ordinary people that's in this country are going to continue to suffer. Exactly. That's the point is that I always say like at this point, 
you know, South Africa is no longer kind of a democracy. We are two different countries in the same space. Trouble and the majority sense. country, you know, the, the majority country is, is living on, what is it, 18 rand a day or less. Yep. They're below the poverty mm. line. Seven percent of us look at youth unemployment. We are predominantly youthful. I mean, this is, you know, the Gini coefficient, which measures socially and social inequality. We are the highest in the world. That's, I mean, we are constantly on a knife edge, and we saw it. You know, July. I don't think July really for me was was necessarily about loyalty to the former president. Though he's used it as a mechanism to try and intimidate courts into ruling in favour of him. I think it was just about the fact that when you have a society that is so grossly unequal, where, you know, money is just, there's rampant corruption, rampant inequality, it's and very, very, very ineffective law enforcement, it takes one spark to set, like, a whole field on fire. And that's, that's why I think, you know, so many people are just saying, I love South Africa, I care about it, but I can't stay in a state that's so potentially dangerous to me and my family, and to my community, and to everyone all the time. Um, and I, I think that's, I understand that. Um, but, you know, yeah. So, you know, Karen, and uh, like we're frankly running out of time, and it's horrendous, <laughs> but which makes me want to ask you this question. You spend all day, every day, looking at the worst of us. The worst of the, the not really the worst of everything that that the country is dealing with, and you wake up and you have the smile and you can laugh and you can you know joke. I'm very interested to know where do you find that kind of source of joy and resilience, as it were. Where do you find that within you? Well, I mean, I am. I'm someone who has a lot of faith. I pray all the time. I'm literally like, please help me. Like, and, and I, all the time, I'm like, God, no, Gareth doesn't believe in any of that, but I do. No, and it, it helps great. me a lot. And I, I do. I also I do. Very, you know, like, I promise you, so often I'm just like, I've gotten, I've been in so many situations where things should have gone radically wrong. And I've, just been like, thank you, God, for getting me out of this. But I also have an incredible family, an incredible community. My mom prays for me like every day. The 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 hard. Oh, I don't want to cry. I don't know why I'm getting so emotional about it. The hardest thing for me is not what comes at me. It's what comes at my family. My younger sister is a is a brilliant doctor in Cape Town. She works in the state system. She went through the worst of COVID. She watched young people all kinds of people just die in front of her. You know, I can't contemplate the level of trauma that she's experienced and and many other, you know, all of the medical professionals who've gone through this whole thing. Um, And, you know, we see the issues in the state system at the moment. But, you know, she she muted me on Twitter. She just said, dude, can't deal with it. Like my mom's blind. And so she gets the phone to read my tweets to her and then sometimes the replies come and she's just like, and my dad, like, about it like he's just like he I know it bothers him and my brother like you know I think that's I sometimes feel a huge weight of the anxiety that I cause to people who care about me because they worry so much that like I'm gonna get hurt or someone something bad's gonna happen every time I go to a court thing I mean if I get charged and I have to go on trial like 
I know that's going to really, really affect people who care about me. And I mean, but listen, you know what? Uh, you, you, you're you not choosing small-scale enemies here. You've got ministers who hate no. you. You've got former presidents I mean, my who hate you. My, my brother came to my book launch and was chirping from the front row at Adrian saying that, you know, he's like, just don't eat the snacks. <laughs> like, he's going to get poisoned. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, we do have moms. We have, we have a great sense of humor. Um, but, like, at the end of the day, like, my job constantly teaches me, and it's actually in the front of the book, is that, you know, you can either be someone who, who stands up and just says, like, this is wrong, yes, you know, um, and, and those are the people that shift history, and, and hopefully in our kind of history, well, I've made a contribution, I've helped things, yeah. you know, Absolutely. and, and uh, you know, that's what I've got to have if, if it wasn't for journalists in this country, we would never have heard about the Guptas landing at Watercliffe Air Force Base, and that was what started the oh, whole ball rolling. Big. Right. Sorry, yeah, that's yeah. Okay, yeah. So, um, and, and I remember that. I mean, he, he was the one in his car at EWN, and everyone just started running after that story. But, yeah. you know, that was, and, 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 you know, so many brilliant people. I'm not, the, yeah. like, I'm just a small person in a very big well, field of we, very, very We were really in blissful ignorance before then. I mean, we were joking about <laughs> Jacob Zuma and the State of the Nation address and, you know, his funny eccentricities, and we thought, oh, well, we've got this real character for a president. We had no idea of the skullduggery and the depth mm -hmm. to which it went, the network of patronage. All of that stuff unfolded in a very short space of time. And again, I'm going to say that journalists deserve uh, the, the lion's share of the credit for bringing us to a, a moment of, of being awake enough to know what was going on around us. Karen, what's the next project? Because you, you're not the kind of person who sits on your laurels. I know that nuclear is, is still very much on sale and in the bookstores, and I would encourage anybody who sees it and is interested in the, in the nuclear deal story to go and uh, grab a copy of this book by Karen and Kirsten Pearson. Uh, you can find out all about the stuff that we didn't get time to cover in this morning's show. What's the next project? Well, there's this very important inquiry that the NPA has been ordered to conduct into the political uh, interference of the Mbeki administration in apartheid-era prosecutions. Hmm. Where, and that's really where the interference started, where, the, where Mbeki and his ministers are alleged to have actually shut all those cases down. Hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that that is going to be potentially explosive because we, you know, we have like strong evidence that some kind of deal was was met, was reached between with, between the Nats and the ANC. The terms of which have never really been disclosed to the to the country. But it essentially, in my view, sowed the seeds for the kind of non-accountability cancer that we have. Yep. Because it's like, well, we let you guys get away with murder. Can what we, what can we get away with? And I think that that. That inquiry, which I think the NPA is potentially going to try and keep under wraps, and I certainly hope they don't do so, will give us a, pr a proper insight into how our past have, and may have had very powerful implications for our future. It's not an accident that uh, Zuma quoted P.W. Buerta's refusal to go to the TLC when he tried to defend himself against going to Zondor. Right, right. I think that's a really... They're not going to keep it under wraps. We, th that's the, exactly the kind of, I don't think we'll accept it, but we had, yeah, but that is like, yeah, it's exactly the kind of distraction, distraction 
that the ANC needs for people right now because people are so fed up with them. People are so angry and fed up with them. That kind of distraction, the distraction of looking into the past and looking at what could, what went wrong where and who didn't say what, and who, that is exactly the kind of distraction that they are hoping will keep no, them in power. I don't think they want to have that inquiry because it shows, you know, this this rhetoric. They utilize, um, you know, that they they don't they do very little to actually address the genuine trauma and pain of victims of what happened. Oh yeah. But then they utilize it. But they were the ones that ensured that the people responsible were never brought to justice. Correct. They interfered. That's the allegation. There's been a finding in the Supreme Court of Appeal that that is what happened. And it's so dire that the NPA is actually being ordered to find if anyone could be held criminally liable because interfering in the duties of the prosecuting authority is a criminal offence. Set the scene for everything else that happened. I mean, you know, so there was, there was this, you know, the ANC... The ANC effectively made a decision for whatever reason that it was not going to seek redress. Um, it, 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 and the other thing is, of course, that the TRC recommend, uh, recommended compensation um, for the victims. And that money, you know, there was a, I mean, Patricia DeLille speaks about this, but that money ended up, which was budgeted for, ended up, you know, supposed to be a social development plan, going into buying arms. Mm-hmm. From the very same people yep. that the apartheid government is doing business with, and it, what, it, mean, what it'll do is it'll clearly show that the the ANC gave up their moral capital right at the very beginning in order to seek a compromise with with the government that they had replaced. And if you start with that, it's like a relationship. If your relationship starts with cheating, guess what? It's going to end with cheating. And that's exactly what the South African public have learned by both of these two hideous and horrendous regimes, both of whom are very different, but have have ugly, nasty underbellies that need examination. What if that moral compass we, we think they have is actually something that we imbued on them and was never really there? What do you mean? We we just we we, we yeah we think that's who they are. Now. We think that's what they did. We think we think well, that's still, who they are. Still, that's what th- this that's organization why, that's why I'm is. Cynical. I mean, I hear people talking about things. Oh, we just frozen. Pumi, ah, uh, Pumi's just had oh. load shedding. Ah, uh, Pums. Oh, no. All right. Well, we've got to end it all anyway. I mean, load shedding is always on time. Karen, it's so good to see you again, and well done on your book. Um, you, Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's terrific to have your input on the show, and I hope we see you again in person soon. Cool. Cool. Well done, Bye. Karen. Thank you. There's Karen Morn, and I'm afraid Pumi has been load shed in the middle of her sentence. Uh, let's hope we can pick up this conversation next Thursday. Have an awesome day, everybody. We will see you tomorrow, Friday. Yay! Bright and early at 6 o'clock. Cheers. Be good. See you later.